Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend, co-host, and fellow getting ready for high school with a really bad haircut and maybe halfway good clothing, Adam. <laughs> hey, I've got, I've got pretty cool hair. <laughs> you do. I think, yeah, your hair would be perfect for 1986. I don't know if mine would. I definitely think we could hang with the kids in the 1980s because the outfits in season four of Stranger Things, I can vibe with those. Those feel like, yeah, those feel cool. Those feel like normal. They don't feel like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, 80s on steroids versus 80s on like regular stuff. So yeah, this is good. I like I, it. I, I have to admit though, and I think I said this to you on one of our previous episodes that I did have the Will Byers haircut as a young boy or you know the similar to like um bastion in never ending story just kind of like the bowl haircut i had that when i was you know four or five six something like that but i didn't have it when i was you know preteen, teenager so <laughs> at some point i i realized it wasn't the best look anymore and got a different haircut so yeah will needs will needs a haircut i have to say are you saying that he needs a haircut from season four's premiere or you're saying that from season three he needed a haircut and season four wasn't much of an upgrade yeah i think both i think season okay he's, <laughs> at any point i mean he in first in the first season it kind of worked because he was young enough looking that i could see okay yeah that's still a style that somebody of his age and size would probably wear but i think as the actors aged up I just feel like that haircut definitely doesn't suit him anymore. He needs to figure something out. I'm not sh saying I, I have a solution. I'm not a hairstylist. I, I can't make any recommendations, but just something, some, some change. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, if you haven't guessed or you've just downloaded this episode of our podcast randomly, we are in the season premiere of season four of Stranger Things. I'm definitely excited to get back into it. It's been a minute since we've concluded our Stranger Things 3 adventure, and now we're in season four. As of this recording, it is the most current season. I'm pretty sure that that will not be the case for very long, and we are excited. I believe, Adam... This season for you will probably have the most restraint that you'll have to give because of how much you know, because it's the most recent of the seasons. And so yes, I'm asking for your consideration. You've been great so far in the first three. I have a lot of questions before we actually get into the meat of the episode, which we've got a lot to cover. I just wanted to sort of do an overview and yeah. give my initial thoughts. You can retort, respond, re whatever the word is kind of give me your response here. Sure. First of all, season four came about two and a half years after, I believe, season three. So there is definitely a significant jump. Almost, yeah, almost three years. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely jarring for me to dive right into this, no matter what the gap in my viewing from three to four was, to see these kids' voices change, the look feel, they feel more young adult it's not only that, 
but the tone that this first episode sets, it's almost as if the Duffers have said, we are going to ratchet up everything. We're going to ratchet up the action. We're going to ratchet up the production because again, it seems like every season they get more and more money because of the huge popularity. And I got to tell you, the horror aspect of this really side sideswiped me. I did not know what was coming at the end of this episode. It was something straight up out of Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th to a point where, I kid you not, I watched the premiere late at night and I had a little bit of trouble going to sleep. Like I turned my lights <laughs> off and I was yeah. like, is there going to be a creature that's going to sound like my wife and then have a deep menacing voice transition? I don't know. So I sort of had miniature second thoughts about this. I was like, do I need to do this? Because if you don't know me, if you don't listen to Feel and Film, the other podcast that I'm on, you know I'm not a huge horror fan. I've become a better horror fan, but I'm not diving into the ring. I'm not going into paranormal activity. I'm not itching to see these types of films. I will and have learned to appreciate movies like The Shining or The Blair Witch Project, really things that don't have a lot of like disturbing images. And in particular, the last scene, without going into too much detail yet, it was really disturbing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to need Adam to hold my hand here at some point because (laughs) I think it's just going to get a little too crazy for me. I'm absolutely in. I think this first episode was fantastic. It's just having to reset because I felt like the training wheels came off when we got to the end of this episode. They're longer. And so listeners... If you've been used to our normal format of releasing two episodes a week, just as a PSA for Stranger Things 4, because of the length, we will be releasing these episodes once a week so that we can have time to really enjoy the discussion. They'll probably be a little bit longer than our normal episode links in terms of our discussion. And the ninth episode, which is pretty much a feature length film, (laughs) is going to be broken up into two parts. I'm not sure if we're going to record the whole thing and then just release it in two episodes more than likely, we're actually just going to cut it off at a certain halfway mark. And I might need your help. Like, okay, what's the appropriate halfway mark? Sure. Is it the actual like timestamp or is there a particular event? When we get there, we'll get there. But right. overall, Adam, it was a really solid first episode. Lots going on. Had had a, one particular returning actor, uh, Mr. Matthew Modine. We'll talk about him in here in a few minutes. But it was great. It was a really great way to get back into the series, even as jarring as it was. Yeah, I think you nailed it. This is, if you were watching the show real time, let's say you watched season three, summer of 2019, and you were 14. Well, you now are 17 years old when this season dropped, you know, so you grew up. And so I think the Duffers realized that and realized that they needed to, just as you said, ratchet it up, not just for from a a dramatic standpoint, but also the the audience is older now. If you're trying to frighten your audience, you're going to have to push it a little bit more than you did before because they're going to be like, oh, that's for babies or whatever. So they really decided, yeah, let's evolve the show. Let's really lean into the horror aspect. I will say, I think it's still kind of sci-fi horror as opposed to full-on body horror. I mean, there's some some gruesome things being seen here, but I think it's all in service of the story. And again, you'll understand as the show goes along why certain things are happening. They're not just happening randomly for no reason. They all have a point to them (laughs) and you'll understand everything 
in due time. But yeah, it's uh, it was a lot of fun to revisit this episode. As you know, as people who may or may not know listening who are listening, <laughs> I work with Matthew Modine. So this was a lot of fun. I remember when he went and started filming this season in the winter of 2019 into 2020. And of course, then all productions got shut down. He did not complete his filming. It had to get picked up many, many months later. And because of of the shutdown, I think it was one of the longest production times for a season of television ever in terms of like the beginning to end. Yeah, it was great to have him come back and reprise Dr. Brenner. We can jump right in if you want to this cold open, because one thing I wanted to share with you, I don't know if you know, they released this whole cold open, this whole 1979 sequence as a teaser prior to the release, like a few weeks prior, they kind of dropped it on social media. So you could see this whole opening scene. Yeah. And I think it really primed a lot of, a lot of fans who were, have been itching for three, almost three years to see what happens next in Hawkins. And all of a sudden they're getting a flashback scene to 1979 with Dr. Brenner back. And so I think it was a really smart tactic to kind of because it doesn't give anything away about the season. You're basically giving a little little bit of backstory without kind of ruining anything or or giving anything away. So they used it as a type of sneak peek. Uh, they yeah. also had a trailer, of course, and the trailer definitely don't watch it, I'll just say, because there's a lot of imagery in it that will give things away. So I think if you haven't watched it, try to avoid it. Sometimes it auto plays on Netflix and I'm like, stop it. Just stop playing. I don't want to see that. I want to go in cold. Yeah. I have made it a point since the end of season one not to see anything related to future seasons in terms of marketing. Unfortunately, when I go to IMDb, the first thing that pulls up when you pull up the Stranger Things page is the most recent episode, and it's usually the cover art for whatever the current season is. I have glanced at the cover art without trying to read too much into it, and obviously there's a a face, a monster with a face, and Gratefully, right. the season premiere gives that away. So I know nothing apart from that by the end of this first episode. So I'm grateful to have not been spoiled. And so when you get into this, when we, as we get into this, I'm excited to sort of unpack more theories that may go unanswered as we've done. You know, I listen back through the edits and I'm like, oh, we didn't answer that question. Or yeah. I asked that question, but I guess I forgot about that. So hopefully the listeners that are tuning in and enjoying this are like, (laughs) that's so funny. You ask about that theory and you never bring it up again or whatever. These are definitely in the moment. And I think that's what's great about the way that we do this is that it's not that we forget about previous episodes, but that we are really literally in the moment of each episode. And the bigger, I think the bigger strokes of ideas sort of play themselves out. But it also reminds me as I'm experiencing this in two ways, one live going through it with you and also going back as I edit, I'm reminded that the value of watching these things in chunks allows you to sort of connect the dots a little bit easier. So it really is a different experience and I'm learning to appreciate that aspect of it. And so I think it's kind of like we're on the opposite end of it where we're enjoying these episodes by episodes and we're catching the story arcs, we're catching the major plot points But I think a lot of the questions that are asked as you binge through it sort of are fresh in your mind. So a question you ask from episode one 
four hours later, you're in episode four and you're like, oh yeah, my question got answered. Whereas for us, it's probably going to be weeks before we get to episode four. I'm okay with that. I'm enjoying the heck out of this. Yeah. It just makes for a fun kind of listen back like, oh, okay. Yeah. I remember asking that, but we never really went back to it and that's okay. Yeah. And uh, hopefully the listeners that have watched it and they have insights, they can provide more they're enjoying it and that they're like, yeah, I'm asking those same questions. Maybe they'll get answered. Maybe they won't. Or maybe they'll be like, haha, Patch, you didn't get to answer that question. You didn't figure that out, but I did. So right. it's lots well, of fun. And, and I say definitely started. as we go through this, if you have a theory, please share it. I, I promise I won't ruin anything or you know give any clues to anything. What I will say is that not all of my questions get answered in this season. So that's Got it. there's something fun about that in that just like previous seasons, it sometimes took more than that season to resolve a particular story thread. So I think the same thing is happening here is that there's a lot of loose ends that will need to be addressed in what I believe will be the fifth and final season. Cool. Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's get into the cold open of episode one entitled The Hellfire Club. We find out pretty yes. early what that is. But the cold open, as you mentioned, it sets us up with a flashback to 1979. Brenner is getting ready with his amazing pre-Steve Harrington hair. This is amazing. <laughs> like, it's just big and gray or big and white. Love it. Big and um, sideburns. Yeah. I mean, it's it's big. Like, it's good yeah. 70s hair. And I, I like it. He's getting ready. He is doing a crossword puzzle. And I'm, I wanted to ask you, is this something that Matthew Modine would do? Like, I picture him as the one time I've gotten a chance to talk to him, I wish I'm hoping to get a chance to talk to him again in relation to, to our show. But I feel like this little timed crossword and pruning this little tree, I feel like that's something that Matthew Modine would do. Like he has these kind of idiosyncrasies in his real life. I wonder if he kind of brings that to the to the character. He definitely drinks tea and does crossword puzzles, although I've never seen him time himself. I think Brenner gives himself 10 minutes on the clock to complete. That's pretty impressive, actually. But I have to say that as I watch the scene and you see the close-ups of him filling in the crossword puzzle, first of all, I can recognize those are his hands. And I also know that it's his handwriting. I know his handwriting well enough from working with him for almost 15 years that I can see that's him writing those letters. I mean, they could easily have had anybody and just said, you know, hey, Matthew, stay in your trail or we'll get somebody else to, you know, do these close-up shots. But it's him and it's his handwriting. So, but yeah, I love the meticulous routine. It's not quite, I think, Matthew's routine, but he does enjoy a cup of tea doing a crossword puzzle. So it's, hey, you never know. Maybe he infused some of himself into this character here. Definitely want to ask that question if we get a chance yeah. to at some point. So he heads off to Hawkins Lab and all the buzzed head kids are playing and training. Um, I think I saw Plinko, Chess, and Labyrinth among the, the many things that they are uh, entertaining themselves with or working with. Right. And of course, there's such a subtlety to their powers because we've gotten so used to them, uh, to L, that, you know, watching somebody use their mind to move the silver ball through the labyrinth maze, we're like, hey, that's fun. And if this was the yeah. first season, we'd be like, that's amazing. What's going on? But <laughs> right. we've gotten so acclimated to, oh, yeah, it's the world of Stranger Things, you know, moving stuff with your mind, whatever, exploding your head, you know, those kinds right. of stuff. At this point, this is where Bernard takes 10 for lessons, air quotes there. And he sees Dr. Ellis along the way. I thought that was a nice little nod to her. Telepathic abilities, they're in full effect. This is a great little game. I thought, and again, this is, <laughs> I keep thinking, is this Matthew Modine or is this Dr. Brenner? <laughs> He's drawing pictures 
and he's asking 10 to essentially pull a Ghostbusters and telepathically yep. read or see what's on the paper. And he guesses son. And then the second one he guesses, I think, is cow. And Brenda looks down and he goes, It's supposed to be a dog. It looks like a cow. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It does. It does. And so, again, I'm yeah. going, is, is Matthew Modine just not good at drawing things? I just, I, I just see. Yeah. And again, they're, they're sort of infused together, and you can't really separate them, which I think is what makes his incarnation of Dr. Brenner so great, is that you can't separate these two from this brain of mine. Right. And I think that uh, he's talked about this in, in some interviews. This is not giving anything away, but you know, as an actor, he had to create his own backstory for his character, even when the writers didn't provide him with one. So he's kind of filled in the blanks for himself. I think any actor needs to do that to kind of embody a character that they're going to be playing, especially for a series where it's going to go beyond just one appearance. You need to kind of figure out, well, who is this person? How do they wake up in the morning? What, what's their routine? Like, well, how do they draw? Like, what's their sense of humor? All of that. What's their accent? We talked about his you know, unique accent as well. So all these mysteries that an, an actor can, can create for their performance. And uh, I think there's a little, little bit of him here. It's very hard for me, having worked with him, as I said, to watch him and not, not see Matthew and to kind of allow my self just to see a character that he's playing it's it's sort of it like takes me out a little bit but this scene regardless of that i think this whole opening it completely turns itself upside down after this little ghostbusters scene it becomes a horrific nightmare and i completely forgot that it was matthew modine i was like oh dr brenner okay now now i'm in it because yeah that's exactly what I thought is it goes from quirky to like, oh, it's gotten real real quick. Right. Because when he asks Ten to find Dr. Ellis, Ten starts freaking out. He's starting to see a vision and he hears screaming. And then like the music changes. And then we get Brenner, like he makes a phone call to Peter and Alec, which made me think of like Peter Mayhew, who played Chewbacca and Alec Guinness, who played <laughs> Obi-Wan. I kind of think that was a little play into that, although I don't know what the connection would be. Maybe just random names from the Duffers. But then <laughs> the door, like the blast door basically knocks him out and everything goes dark and he wakes up and everything's chaotic. He's running through the lab. All the kids are dead, like all the kids, save one. And that is, of course, Eleven, who turns around. He sees her. She's bloody in the eyes, bloody in the nose. And he's like, what have you done? What have you done? And it's just, it just adds a layer to Eleven's backstory and it's another mystery i kept thinking about because my wife and i have watched melrose plays how you take a character that you've put on a show and in order to make them more interesting to sort of spread out their storyline a little bit more you invent a lost brother or sister or one of the recent episodes that we had watched we find out that one of the characters was adopted oh my gosh so now we've got this mystery of who is her mother and who is her father And I think in some ways, that's what the Duffers are doing here. Not that they didn't have any idea. Obviously, they had this whole story played out and still do to this day. But I think it's great that you're adding that extra layer to Elle's backstory because now you're like, okay, we know she escaped. When was that? 
but what happened in between that event, like that like whole thing, and when we see her, and I think that's going to be part of what we see in this season is sort of connecting those dots, but it definitely adds to her story, which I think makes her more compelling as a character. Uh, definitely. And again, I won't, I'm going to work really hard not to give things away or not to, but I will say there's, because this is the first time I've watched this episode since I watched it when it first dropped, I did notice something this time watching this scene, a clue that will come back later that I never noticed before. I, I just didn't pick up on it. So it's fun to kind of revisit shows like this. And once you know what you know, right, and be able to come back and be like, oh, I see what they did there, you know, so it's, okay. it's fun. Hold so. hold on to that. You yeah. know, I know you're not going to tell me now, no. but make sure that you remind yourself to bring that back sure. when it sure. becomes relevant, saying, remember weeks ago when I told <laughs> you about this? You And you might even pick up on it now that I mentioned that there's something you might be like, oh, maybe I, yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll get to it. it. It'll be fun. We'll <laughs> We'll tie it all together. Yeah. Well, much like every episode of this series, we have a shocking cold open and then the Stranger Things titles come up, the big four in the background, I believe. And then we're what I call California buyers instead of Hawkins yeah. buyers. Again, jarring is the word that I used to summarize this first episode because we've jumped to 1986, present day, according to you know where we are in the Stranger Things universe, and we find that Elle's writing a letter to Mike, updating him on the goings-on of life in California. So we're day 185. Nice little creative way to tell us kind of how far removed we are from the end of season three. So we're about a, it's about six months from, like, I guess it's the spring semester. They're, they're in high, they're junior high, high school, high school. So yeah, like it ended, so it was like 4th of July. So it's, it's, it's like eight, eight months later from, from mm-hmm. July to March, let's say. So well, it's October because they left in October. Oh, that's true. So from the last scene that we saw them three months later, it would be like yeah. So it's like five months after the last yeah. scene and eight months after the events of the the Starcourt Mall right. know, battle. Yeah, the spring break hint gives us a, so it tells us that about five, between five and six months or six to right. eight months have passed since all those events. So not too far removed, about the same amount of time between two and three that we're in three and four. Right and. For some crazy reason, the kids look about three years older, so a lot's <laughs> happened in six yeah. months. <laughs> yeah. They all hit puberty like had right at the, the same, same time. time. Yeah. <laughs> they changed their hair. Yeah. They changed their attitudes. Mike got a lot longer. Like I feel like he's seven feet tall now yeah. in his long hair. Just he's like he could actually pass for someone today. Like I think this is Finn as he is. Right in our present day, like we're just going to throw like a, a t-shirt on you. This is hellfire club and make you say eighties things and that'll fix it. Right. <laughs> yeah. He, with his, that's like probably his normal hair, just like his messy, yeah. Yeah. Half, you know, sort of longish hair. Yeah. That just seems yeah. very, very much something a teenage boy of today would sport and you wouldn't even think anything about it, but yeah, it's unfortunately some of the other characters still have some, some hair problems. <laughs> Got some work to do in the yeah. cast of stranger things. But hey, we all had our problems when we were teenagers, you know? We, were... we did. I mean, Ella is not the only one that has no. problems in high school. <laughs> but we get to see a lot of kind of what she's dealing with through this letter. I, I kind of like this technique. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in some ways you'd consider it cheap, a voiceover that kind of 
sums you up, but I'm okay with that. I love that the delivery of it, I think is what makes it nice. So we find out that she's working on a, a diorama, something called a visual aid is what she says. Yeah. Uh, Joyce is working from home selling Encyclopedia Britannica's, I think is what it is. I remember those. Yeah. Will is painting, acting weird, and maybe like someone from what Elle is saying. Don't get much from the episode from that. I still think he's sort of traumatized based off of the last three yeah. years that he's been existing as a human being. Jonathan's become a little pothead. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> hilarious, but not abnormal. Like I, I thought if anybody's going to get into drugs, it's probably going to be Jonathan. Uh, we find out that he has a friend named Argyle that delivers pizza. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where we're at with the California crew in terms of like how they're living. And I think it's really neat that we're using it through a voiceover of a letter from her to Mike. I love that California dreaming is playing mm -hmm. over this whole sequence. It's such a fantastic use of the mamas and the papas uh, because that song is so it's got this irony to it. The song itself is like, it sounds happy, but it's really not. And it really does capture that duality of her saying things are really great. Um, I'm, I think I finally adapted says L I'm still good at math, but my grammar is becoming good also, which I thought is a great way to say <laughs> yeah. that. And at the same time, we're seeing that she's not adjusting well, that no. I don't think anybody in all honesty is very happy. So it's, it's really just a great dichotomy and such a great way to write one way and then show another to really tell the authenticity wrapped up in a little bit of deception here. Yeah, I agree. I think through this sort of montage with voiceover, they were able to cover a lot of ground really quickly, kind of bring everybody up to speed. Again, if, if you were waiting those three years, you needed a little overview of like, okay, how are we doing out in California now after however many months? Uh, one thing I did notice, but I didn't notice the first time I saw it, is a little connection, a little thread that when the camera first pans into Elle's room, it goes through her door and her door is three inches open. And I thought that was a nice little nod oh, to Hopper's really cool. yeah. rule of keeping the door three inches open. So it seems yeah. like she's, even though she doesn't have a boyfriend there, she's still sort of listening to that fatherly advice, despite him not being around anymore. So I, honoring yeah. his legacy, exactly. honoring his yeah. memory. Yeah, that's, that's kind of so, cool. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So we also find out that they are living in Lenora Hills, California. Mm -hmm. And it's just a couple of days before spring break. As we mentioned, she's working on a project. I saw that Will has his own project and he had, I saw Turing. So I thought, okay, Alan Turing, the Turing effect or Turing, I think. The, Turing machine. What, yeah. Turing machine. Yeah. So yeah. we don't know what that's about just yet, but clearly they're both working on a project. I kind of felt like through this whole episode, Adam, they've sort of be not become best friends, but they've sort of become sort of confidants with each other, like yeah. they're protective of one another. And I think that has to do with the fact that they're living together. Like Joyce is taking care of her. And I think Will has sort of come alongside her and said, Hey, trauma, I'm trauma too. Let's, let's connect. And I could tell throughout the episode that it seemed like he wanted to be protective of her, but he didn't have the power to do so. Like he wasn't right. a strong, he wasn't Billy. He wasn't, uh, Steve Harrington, he was still Will, but yet he wanted to be able to be a protector for her. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it seems almost like they're like they're siblings or like like they are the same age. So they're like twins, siblings, but and that's why they're in the same classes together and they're kind of going through the same experiences together. But they're they're not obviously twins by blood. They're twins by horrible things <laughs> happening to them <laughs> through trauma. 
So that's trauma that's twins. A, yeah, trauma, trauma twins. twins. There you go. <laughs> um, one thing I, I just wanted to also add is I don't know if it's just me, but in these opening scenes where we see Will for the first time, it's not his hair. I I don't know why, but I keep seeing Daniel Radcliffe when I see uh, yeah, the actor. There's something in his face. Yeah. Now that he's a little older. Yeah. 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 Definitely the American Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. Put and put so, some glasses on him and. <laughs> I'm I'm hoping. I'm really hoping that we get some kind of mashup of these two universes. You got the Duffers, you got JK, they're going to talk and they're going <laughs> to like do some kind of battle, some kind of cooperative story with the Hawkins crew and the the Potterverse just colliding in some way shape or form and these two are going to be at the center of it. You got <laughs> you got Harry Potter Britain, you got the American Potter right? in That's terms right. of Will, Will Potter <laughs> instead of Buyer, Will Potter. <laughs> it's like, you know, Spider-Man versus Superman. You know, you're bringing the two yeah. Marvel versus yeah, Marvel DC, DC together. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I see them more being cooperative than anything else. Yeah, they, seem like, they have to team up. Yeah, yeah, for, to fight uh, for greater yeah, they evil. They have to fight the, the, the evil creature from this season along with Voldemort, like mashed up. <laughs> right. Because why not? <laughs> Anything's possible. Yes, for sure. I mean, comic book form, animation, whatever. We've got plenty of ways to tell that story. As Elle is finishing up the letter, it transitions over to Mike's house. Another great way to kind of connect us over to Hawkins because he's reading the letter. He's late for school. <laughs> this feels very much like a Marty McFly moment. He's like, damn, I'm late for school. Yeah. And <laughs> he rushes to get a Pop-Tart, still loving those. His mom is uh, encouraging him to be home early from the Hellfire Club. Ding, there's the title. He's wearing it on his shirt to which his dad calls it the high school dropout club. (laughs) (laughs) Ted Wheeler has not changed in six months. (laughs) No, but his wife has visually at least. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's always on the cutting edge of the latest fashion and makeup trends. (sighs) For better or for worse. (laughs) All I could hear was let's get physical, physical. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. She's like, she's right out of a, like a VHS workout video. She really, she really, she really is. <laughs> and then we, uh, we kick over to uh, Dustin's house. Susie, the love of his life. She's trying to hack into the school computer to change Dustin's grade in Latin. I got war games vibes here. I thought that was pretty fantastic. And I don't know if you saw, but when they show the establishing shot of Dustin's house, you see cerebro is now on the roof of his house he like installed it that. on it's kind of you know on the far side of the the roof but it's like sticking up the antenna so clearly he decided if i'm going to have a ongoing relationship with Susie, i can't be trekking up to the top of weathertop every time i want to no. have a conversation so <laughs> i gotta be practical i gotta <laughs> yeah. be practical little details like that are great if you had just watched season three for example you would you know very easily see the, the kind of connections that they're making here it's sort of a low angle shot, but you can kind of see, you know, the makeshift antenna array kind of poking out from the roof. Clearly, his mother either doesn't know it's there or just said, okay, do what you want, Dusty Buns, or whatever she calls him. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think she's kind of oblivious, too. Like, she, yeah. <laughs> she has a great moment here where she's knocking on the door. Dusty, what's going on in there? You're going to be late. Don't come in. I'm naked. <laughs> no, you're hacking. That's what you're doing. Yeah. But yeah, that would keep your mom out if you're naked. <laughs> Again, I, it's so funny to me how movies and shows of the 80s and 90s, because so few people knew about computers, 
or computer hacking, they made it look like it was this easy thing you could do. You just, if you have a computer and you have a modem, you can hack into anything. It's, it's just, look, we can change our grades. We can do whatever we need to do. But obviously it's something that only very few individuals would have the skill set to do. It's just interesting always how film kind of gets computing so wrong, especially in the early days. Uh, like movies, even like movies like Hackers, which is about hacking, was so ridiculous and absurd in its presentation of that world. But yet, that's what a movie is, right? It's just a fictionalization yeah. of something. I would say as a counterpoint to that, some of the better representations of that, particularly in TV show format, is the USA Network's um, Mr. Robot. Oh, yeah. But I that's more the recent. First season. Yeah. That is, yeah. And I watched the first season and read some information on it that they really wanted to, within reason, get the hacking right, right. so as not to be so close to <laughs> the actual thing that it created a security breach or an opportunity for someone to actually hack something. But a lot of what you see in that show is as accurate a portrayal as it can be, which I thought was, I mean, I, I can respect that because in the last 20 years, since the rise of the internet, the art of hacking, and I say that very cautiously because I don't want to sound like I'm advocating for it, Right. but the idea of being able to manipulate a computer for good or evil is an art form. The ability to read code, the ability to understand ciphers and things like that. The cinematic is very entertaining, but I think shows like Mr. Robot create that as a component of the greater story because it's definitely character driven and it's one that I won't say it's so dark that you have to watch something happy afterwards but it's not a light-hearted show like it's no, not yeah it's good but it's definitely one that you want to kind of take a breath after watching a few episodes because there are some dark elements but one of the cool components of it is how they portray the act of hacking you know even right. so far as explaining some of the techniques that are used so I think it's an appreciation or it speaks to the appreciation of the art of the hacker when you right. can create shows that are trying to accurately portray that kind of um, art form. Yeah. And I think it's just back in the early days of computing when the writers and filmmakers of TV and film realized they don't really know anything about hacking. So we'll just say, oh, if it's a nerdy kid, he's a hacker. Like he can, of course he can hack because, you know, he's a nerd. So they just, it's like there's never any explanation about why or how they learned how to do this, right? They just happen to know how, like, like Matthew Broderick in War Games. Like, how does he know how to do this? It's never really explained. <laughs> but hey, that's the uh, suspension of disbelief of 80s computing. Absolutely. I would have thought the War Games nod would have been more on the nose if the password was pencil. <laughs> that regard. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was like, it. what was it? Tigers 86? Was that the Tigers 86? Yeah. Cause yeah. it's the mascot and the year, which right. is definitely on the nose. So yeah. it's not pencil, but it's in that same category of being a little too close yeah. to obvious. <laughs> That's why passwords are far more complicated today. <laughs> yeah. With characters. My password and... is password. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the episode moves on. We're in Steve's car. Steve and Robin are discussing potential suitors for themselves, both girls, because, of course, we find out in the previous season that Robin lacks girls. And Steve has definitely changed. He says, So it's like, do I really want to start another relationship that has no point other than sex? I mean, I just, I'm not, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Season one, Steve would be like, absolutely. Season four, Steve is like, no, I need something more meaningful. 
I need someone that is not replacing Nancy and gives me what I need like Robin does in terms of that solid friendship. And I find it very hilarious. But it also shows growth. I think that's kind of cool that we see yeah. a kind of more mature Steve. Absolutely. And, he's he's starting to grow up in, in his own way. This is He's in his first full year post-graduation, still not at college, right? He hasn't gone down that path yet, but he is, of course, employed working mm-hmm. at the at the family video. So yep. n- no more scoops ahoy, but that's No okay. more scoops ahoy, unfortunately. He's not slinging <laughs> ice cream. No. Um, would he be considered a townie at this point? Yeah, I kind of think so. Based on what we see with him going back to his high school basketball game to watch the game, that's kind of what you do if you're a townie. You just kind of can't yeah. escape your glory days. <laughs> He was the star basketball player when he was at the school. So for him to go back, it's like you can't escape the glory of what it was like to be the star, to be the popular one that everyone wanted to hang out with. And here he is now just hanging out in the in the stands, watching like yeah. a regular spectator. He's an alumnus. Let's give him an alum. There He's an alumnus. He's That's an a good way. Put, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to talk to Robin, who's distracted by being infatuated with Vicky, who Steve believes is the right girl because she returned fast times, paused at 53 minutes, five seconds. Do you know who pauses fast times at 53 minutes, five seconds? People who like boobies, Ew, Robin. Gross. Boobies. Don't say boobies. Not a big deal, okay? I like boobies. You like boobies. Vicky likes boobies. And I yeah. think it was both simultaneously hilarious and cringeworthy, both to us and. <laughs> And to these characters. <laughs> yeah, I think Steve's last comment is like, why wouldn't you like it? <laughs> it's fun logic. Yeah. I guess she wasn't is. kind because she didn't rewind. She didn't. So gonna, maybe gonna, that's a maybe that's a yeah. strike against Vicky that yeah. she did not rewind. By the way, I did notice in the video store there was a sign in the back that said, be kind, rewind. Ah, so see. It, it is there. Whoever came up with that slogan deserves something. I don't know what. of whatever blockbuster royalties still exist. How about that? (laughs) From that one location. (laughs) From that one location. In Washington State or wherever it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're driving to Hawkins High. This is the quintessential 80s high school parking lot shots with all the people saying hi, coming out of the cars. You see this not just in the 80s, although this feels very much like a 1980s high school parking lot, because it is. Yes, I know I'm Captain Obvious. But we even see this in 90s shows like Beverly Hills 90210, where you have the cars that pull up. People are sort of like, this is the status. This is who I am based on the car that I drive. You've got people waving. You've got cheerleaders hanging out with like football players and people (laughs) are laughing. I mean, it's just a great sort of iconic shot that you're so familiar with from Ferris Bueller's Day Off from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. All these movies that sort of center around. Footloose, yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why I like movies that take place in high school because I love these kinds of shots because they establish the population of a school and how different it is. Being in public school specifically, although you could probably find this in private school as well, but I know that we didn't have parking lots like this where we all just kind of grouped together, but the representation of all the different types of people that we see in these parking lot scenes are a great representation of what we see inside our schools. You have the drama geeks, the band nerds, you've got the cheerleaders, the football players, the, all these different things. And it's all so relatable. So it's fun to see all that sort of played out on screen, whether it's in a movie or in a TV show. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great opening. And again, reestablishes where we are. 
because we are for the first time, not that we haven't been in the high school before, but our main characters are now in high school. So they've moved from middle school, which by the way, is right next door to the high school. I don't know, but that never yeah. happened growing up. Like yeah. it was, they were on two different sides of town. <laughs> the schools yeah. were always completely independent of one another, but clearly someone decided at some point to build a huge school complex with both schools on the same plot of land. And hey, maybe that was a good budgetary move at some point. Probably, but, yeah. Yeah, it's a great little opening. And I really like how they introduce, of course, Max when she comes into the school. Mm-hmm. She's getting off the bus and we'll learn why more later why she's she's not coming to school in a car. She can't afford one. But yeah, she's coming off the bus and I really like the way we're hearing the music in this scene through her headphones you know and she takes them off when someone calls her name and Mm -hmm. the music volume that we're hearing goes down as if we're hearing what she's hearing I thought that was a nice little technique it creates a sense of transition from hey this is the establishing music for this opening scene and then it slowly or suddenly when she comes off the bus becomes the focal point and becomes the distractor of almost isolation because when she pulls the headphones off we can tell that she's being called by the by the counselor she's like hey you missed your appointment so we're sort of getting a little hint drop there like hey something's wrong why is she going to the counselor you know did she cut class what's happening but clearly she's very aloof like she's not with anybody she's not with mike she's not with lucas and we're like well what's going on and of course we find out in a little bit But it's, yeah, you're right. It's a great way to sort of introduce her. And we've talked about this from the season two premiere and the season three premiere, how we reintroduce. Right. The Duffer Brothers have a great way of doing that to establish where everybody is. I imagine it's difficult, especially when you have seasons that are so spread apart, to be able to do that in an economical way. So just like with the letter, we get all of the things happening in California, and then these sequences, we're getting Everything is converging onto Hawkins High School. But I think it's a very cool way to kind of see how everybody's going to school. So you've got the high school that is the focal point for both states or both sets of kids where the high school is where everybody's going and we're getting establishing shots and backstory on the ones from California. Same thing for the kids in Hawkins. Right. And this is what I was talking about, about the jarringness for me is that even though we're back in Hawkins, it feels so different. This episode just sort of reminds us that the kids have grown up, that they've laid their childhood down to an extent and have moved into early adulthood or beyond adolescence and teenage. And we're clearly in a more established time period for them. So going to these high schools, I think, is a great visual way of reinforcing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also for Hawkins, at least, this is a this is a changed high school, a changed community after everything, all the events that transpired the previous summer with the mall. And I brought this up to you offline because they kind of mention it a few times, but they talk about the mall fire and how all these people died Mm -hmm. in the mall fire. Now, this never obviously happened, but clearly all the flayed uh, members of the Mind Flayer, something happened to them somehow they're gone from the community. So I think that Sam Owens and his government team essentially burned down the mall and used that as a cover yeah. story for, for all the dead people and also to cover up the fact there's this giant monster in the middle of st- <laughs> the food court, Star Court, and, and there's a Russian laboratory deep underground in the mall. I, f- I just think that they, they had to do something to sort of make it seem like this all was a just tragic but normal 
thing that could happen. So they right. you know, that people didn't, you know, obviously some people think the town is cursed or there's other things going on. But yeah, I think they'd get into this a little more in the episode. They talk more about how the whole community is kind of reeling from all the, the people. And there were kids, as we remember, there were children, there were people of all ages who were killed by being flayed <laughs> by the mind player. Right. You're right. Um, it was something that I just sort of didn't think about in that last episode where we we're like, yeah, well, how would they know that there's, well, in the background, you see the fire, but it makes total sense that Sam and his team would basically cover that up through right. a fire and create, I would say, this um, reasonable cover story, this believable cover story. And no one would ever want to go back to that mall. You know, it's like one of those situations yeah. where, you know what, you just got to retire that mall if 30 people died in a fire there. That's going to be a haunted mall. So right. just shut it down. And that way the government can do whatever they need to do to kind of figure out what's this amazing underground bunker? What can we use with this? <laughs> so then we're at the pep rally. Go Tigers. Yeah. The band's hopping. Robin's eyeing Vicky. And Dustin and Mike are comparing girlfriends. <laughs> Now look, I'm not saying that my girlfriend is better than yours. It's just that Susie's like a certified genius. You do realize Ellis saved the world twice, right? And yet you still have a C in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and the face he makes is like, I know. Yeah. am I right? Am I right? I'm right, right? It's just yeah. so funny. I know. Dustin. Oh my gosh. I've missed that guy. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's the best. <laughs> we, we find out that uh, Lucas is a baller He's playing for the basketball team yep. He's got that high top haircut Love it I knew lots of people with that haircut And I, being a white kid I was like, I could not have that haircut Unless my name was Vanilla Ice And even that wasn't really quite getting there <laughs> no. He looks over at Max Who kind of gives him a little stink eye So clearly there's tension there we find out that they've broken up, but at that point, we're like, well, they're clearly not happy with each other. And then we get introduced to the uh, captain of the basketball team, mm-hmm. who tries to get people hyped about tonight's basketball game, but not before throwing some love to his girlfriend, Chrissy. And I thought at first this was like, oh, that's fun, you know, pretty girl, whatever. Turns out she becomes a significant part of this episode, <laughs> Yeah, as, <laughs> as we alluded to earlier. I don't like that. And I think we're meant to feel this way. I do not like the fact that he uses this loss of these Hawkins people in the fire as a way to get this high school hyped about the game. Like that is so inappropriate. And uh, it reminds me a little bit indirectly. I know that when this season first debuted, there is a disclaimer even now Mm -hmm. of when the episode released, of course there was the massacre. And I think this season released Shortly after, was it the Uvalde shooting? Is yeah, that the was? Texas uh, school shooting. Yeah. So there was a lot of, I think, sensitivity from viewers, you know, just like who didn't want to see anything that might remind them of that tragedy. Yeah. And I felt like watching him do this was almost like taking that and manipulating it to a right. point where it's like, okay, we're going to take the emotional weight of what has happened and how tragic this was. And we're going to make it like a cheap motivator for us winning the big game. Yeah. And again, I think that's what the Duffers were intending, totally. which is why we get the reaction from the kids that we do. And I think even Lucas was kind of like halfway clapping, like, yeah, yeah, I think we uh, yeah. should do that. Well, especially because he knows what really happened yeah. and uh, <laughs> yeah. witnessed the tragedy firsthand, whereas most people were just hearing about it, I'm sure, on the news or finding out after the fact that these people were killed. And yes, that's horrible. But, you know, our heroes in the show were 
had front row seats for <laughs> most of what happened. Yes. So it, it's got to be extra hard for them to to hear somebody sort of using this as a way, as you said, to you know to get a crowd amped up for a game. Really, you know, yeah. yeah I mean, it's an important game, but yeah, don't use a tragic event from your community to make yourself look like you're a great team captain. It's right. just really, yeah. And I right. think we're, like you said, I think we're absolutely supposed to feel this way. He's not supposed to be a likable character. He's supposed to be the typical high school jock, you know, basically what Steve Harrington was, but has sort of matured out of. Yeah. So. That guy needs to have an experience like these kids. He needs to yeah. <laughs> go face to face with the Demogorgon and <laughs> yeah. attempt to hit him with a, with a nail bat. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really great from a writing standpoint was the dialogue between Dustin and Mike, who were like, wait a minute, they just had a game yesterday. Why are they having a game tonight? And I'm like, yeah, don't you have games every week? And so Max chimes in and she says, this is a tournament. This is what happens. You win one game, you keep playing each night until there's one winner, which is like a duh statement, but it helped me out as an audience. But it also served as a great segue into like, oh my gosh, What's happening here, says Mike and Dustin. <laughs> yeah. And this is where we find out that they are part of this thing called the Hellfire Club, which we were, were alluded to earlier. But it's this D&D group. The game night that they're having is now the same night as this championship game. And so we get the scheduling conflict and this conversation outside where you know they meet at the same time as the game. Lucas asks if Hellfire can, meet, can be moved. Mike asks if the game can be. And there's this like conflict. And I, th I think it's really fantastic that as someone who understands, I mean, most of us understand how you know, school events work. You, <laughs> we know that they can't change that. But I think it's funny that Mike with almost a straight face says, well, can't you just move the championship game? Like, I think he actually <laughs> right. thought, sure, why not? I mean, it's the Hellfire Club. Don't you understand? This is an extracurricular activity that is important, but it creates a little bit of attention. This is also where we get more exposition about, well, why is Lucas hanging out with, why is he on the basketball team? I mean, yes, he may play well, but not well enough to start. We find out that, you know, he joined the team so he wouldn't be bullied and right. that he'd fit in. And that's not what Dustin and Mike want. This is sort of a diversion. So if we got some breaking of the fellowship with the crew leaving for California, now we've created like a sub division where you have now Lucas is sort of going off on his own I think genuinely likes playing, but I think he sees value in sort of going down a path that is not going to get him bullied. Right. You know, the the tension of not being a part of the Hellfire Club that particular night, there's almost like an extension of what Will was trying to do with holding on to his childhood. Lucas is like, I can do both until you can't. Like at some point, you have to be able to choose. You have to make a choice. And I think this is one of those great moments that we all experience in high school where we can't do everything, where we have to lay something down for the sake of something else. And I think this is a pivotal moment in this first episode where Lucas is like, I'm making a choice and I'm sorry, but this is important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, like you said, he's, he's sort of torn between the two worlds. Now he still loves playing with his friends. And, and I think that the hellfire club is an officially sanctioned high school club, which is shocking that they allowed it to be called that, but it is because if you notice later when they play their game, it's in, I think the like, the school auditorium or maybe yeah, the prop like, room, you know, where yeah, like they the have theater, something yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah. So it clearly is at this at the same school where this game is taking place, but in another part of the school. 
And it's like you said, Mike, because it's a school club, thinks it's just as important as the basketball game is to him or his, you know, the other other players. Obviously, we as a as viewers would say, well, clearly there's more people watching the basketball game, so that's more important. But I think when you look at the individuals, you have to say to yourself, yeah, if you're Mike, that's just as important to you as the basketball game is to one of the basketball players. They're both technically games in quotes. They're just there's really no stakes, I mean, beyond you win or you lose. No one's dying. There's nothing on the line here. But for the individual, it means something so much more to you if you're a part of it, if you're invested in it. And I think that's the situation here is that Mike is entirely and Dustin are entirely invested in the D&D club. And unfortunately, Lucas is half invested in both. He hasn't figured out kind of which direction he wants to go. But like you said, he kind of makes a decision by not going to this final game of their campaign. He's decided that he's going to go with basketball over Hellfire. And that's yeah. another rift for them. It's kind of like, then, and then there were two. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then we're at the buyer's house, the California buyer's house. A package arrives for Joyce with a lot of stamps on it. And they are Russian. Yeah. Get the <laughs> Russian presents already. And I mean presents both pun you know, pun intended, presents and presents anyway, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um I love her sales pitch for buying encyclopedias. Have you ever wished you could have the answer to any question right at your fingertips? Oh gosh. <laughs> yes, it's just like those those big fancy books you see on TV. Yeah. Just imagine you'd you'd never have to go to the library again. Hey, think of the money that you'll save on gas alone. It's really on point. <laughs> we had we had world book encyclopedias growing up in my house. I remember and, those, yeah. And uh, I used to love them. I used to love, I mean, in the pre-internet days, you could just pop a book off the shelf and look up almost anything, and there it was. And it made me wonder, do they still sell printed encyclopedias? And apparently they do. They World Book is the only company printing full volumes. They're $1,100 for the whole set. <laughs> yeah. And you can get, they just renounced the release of the 2023 set of all fully up-to-date encyclopedias. So if you want to go retro in your home and have a set of encyclopedias, you can get them. Oh my gosh. I get anxiety from having a number of pop figures sitting on my shelves at work. I I couldn't imagine having different years worth of the world book encyclopedias. The funny thing, if you get the 2021 set, which they still have available, it drops to like $400 for the whole, like for all the volumes. So if you just want to cut out a couple years of current events, you can get a much better deal on a printed <laughs> set. <laughs> I want to meet the person who's buying these. Yeah. Apparently. It's a, I mean, a market how much money does it take to print and to publish? And you can't just do them on demand. They've got to be, there's got to be giant warehouses storing all these giant encyclopedias. Uh, anyway, it's it's a weird... I, I go down weird rabbit holes sometimes when I think about like, oh yeah, I used to love encyclopedias. Whatever happened to those? And then next thing you know, I'm pricing yeah, them out. You're pricing them out? <laughs> <laughs> Checking your bookshelf to see, can I, can I make this work? Is yeah. that good? Can I make a 2024? I'll, I'll just order work? A through C. That's all I have room yeah. for. <laughs> yeah. 
What are the important topics in the alphabet? I probably nothing in Q, nothing <laughs> right. in Z. Let's just eliminate all the letters that wouldn't have anything relevant for me. Exactly. <laughs> so we actually find out that she's waiting for acceptance letters. This is sort of alluded to with Jonathan. He's trying to get into college. Uh, same one with Nancy, I think, because Nancy's already been accepted. Yeah, I think she I had from the like early early admission or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And inside the box, uh, there's a porcelain Russian doll, and apparently it comes with Russian background music, because when she pulls it out, the background music starts going. That's not your typical 80s synth, so I'm no. that that was <laughs> part of the package. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, uh, then we moved to Hawkins High. Uh, we're back in one of the classrooms. It's show and tell about your favorite hero, and Elle and Will's class is uh, presenting. She goes by Jane. I am not going to call her Jane, even though I know that's her name. I've been used to calling her L, so we know that. And so I'm just not going to do that because that's going to confuse me. So we'll keep calling her L. This is where she presents and is immediately made fun of because apparently your dad can't be your hero. Adam, as a dad, I think you can be with me on this, that that is bunk and that yeah. we will advocate for anybody's dad being a hero if they fit the bill. I recently got a an Amazon scribe, a tablet that is an e-reader. Yeah. And it's allowing me to take a lot of like digital notes. My son got a hold of it and promptly scribbled a note that said, I love you, Daddy. Happy <laughs> birthday, your son Carson. And he scribbled another note that said, I'm glad you're my dad. Love Carson. I don't mind being the hero for, for my son. And I don't think it's a bad thing for Elle to have Hopper as her hero. So uh, go yeah, Elle. I, I don't either. <laughs> and not to put us down at all as dads and heroes, but... Hopper really is kind of a hero, and he is sort of a historical figure, if you will. Maybe not in the way that the teacher was implying with the assignment, but hey, he was a detective in New York City. He was the sheriff yep. of Hawkins. He died saving people's lives. So I think, yeah, I think that's a fair uh, hero to do your D. Rayama on. <laughs> That was such a funny moment. <laughs> and then some jerk is like, more like diarrhea. <laughs> Quiet, everyone. <Yeah. laughs> Which I laughed and cried at the same time because I'm like, yeah. I'm really hurting for her in this moment. I but know. I'd be like, it sounds like Billy Madison. Like when, right. when that kid, today, Junior. Wow, that's terrible. Oh, Doyle rules. <laughs> Doyle rules. If a Doyle's, if he shows up at Hawkins High, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna just stop watching and be like, "This is gone. I'm over it." <laughs> hey, Adam, Adam Sandler has a big Netflix deal, so anything's possible there as I'm, well. <laughs> he and the Duffers could get together. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. So um, okay, yeah. Props for her, uh, L, and also yeah. you know, Jane. Yeah, Jane, whatever we're calling her in the moment. Millie. <laughs> Millie. <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown. Man, Elle is just, she's holding in all the pain. I can just see it. You know, she's tearing up. I love how Will is supporting her non-verbally. It's, it's like he's sitting there knowing he can't do anything, but he's like, he's like willing her to get through it, willing. <laughs> That's no pun intended there. Well, just, yeah, no, but <laughs> you're right. But he's trying to just sort of show her that, you can do this I, and I'm here for you. I support you, you know, because no one else, everyone else is laughing basically as, as, as you mentioned. And, and she's just trying to get through this presentation where she says that her dad makes the best egos, which I don't 
know how hard it is to make egos you just put them in the toaster <laughs> but i mean it's hopper okay and it's his cabin so yeah. it might be tough <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for him yeah well and maybe it's that triple stack that he oh was, that's true that they making. made that special so creation yeah together yeah 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 you know, she mentions how they watched Miami Vice together on Fridays, which again was a good callback to the end of season three. Then -hmm. she mentions Mr. Fibley, a squirrel, which I don't know where that's coming from. That seems, unless I missed something, (laughs) I don't know. Deleted scene. It was a deleted (laughs) scene from one of the episodes. (laughs) Uh, But she did, I, I did like this little moment. She said, and this is the alarm that my dad made. And she shows the alarm like that elaborate system the, the that, trip wire yeah the <laughs> so if anyone if the teacher was paying attention she must be like what's this alarm system around your cabin and why oh, do you double, have it? double take there <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh just little little fun subtle callbacks to season two season three yeah 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 it's at this point we get introduced to angela who we see earlier when she sort of is trying to wave at at her and Angela's like, I'm better than you. She makes her feel uncomfortable by calling out the fact that she missed the point of the assignment, sort of being a bully and a teacher's pet at the same time. And it's at this point, Adam, that I wanted Angela's face to sort of split in half, <laughs> like the mind flare weapon. Cause I'm like, I hate people like that. Oh. Like I had, I had my own bullies and these people were the worst. Oh yeah. It's I, very I, triggering I'm, I'm a, for me. Uh, anytime I is. see bullies in film, I just can't help but going back to my like middle school sixth grade year where it was just very hard. You know, it just kids are mean. You know, everyone's changing. They're everyone's kind of forming into their various cliques and everything. And yeah, it's just it's rotten. I I just don't understand why as a society we can't fix this problem. Like, why does it keep happening? If anything, it's getting worse with social media because people do online yeah. bullying now. It's not just like in your face bullying, but people get picked on on social media as well so yeah it's 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 maddening but completely realistic i mean this is what happens sadly well and and a credit to the writing aspect of this if it does create sort of a triggering effect that it's being very effective so it's not Mm -hmm. it's not portrayed in a non-realistic way i mean you definitely are like don't want this one small moment from here that kind of stood out to me was that will actually gets flirted with by oh, right. a classmate, mm-hmm. but he kind of shuns it off. And I'm like, what's up with that? And yeah. we have a same sex relationship potentially happening. We have, you know, an, uh, you know, a gay character in here. Maybe we have two with Will. I right. don't know, but it could also be the trauma and everything. Like he's just not comfortable being in his own skin. I kind of want it to be the latter for the complexity because mm-hmm. I feel like that creates a little bit more interest in this character, but it wouldn't surprise me if this was something that the Duffers were trying to, you know, play with. It could just be an, ex- again, uh, without, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get answered or resolved this season. So I'm not actually giving anything away here. I'm just speculating that it could just be an extension of the fact that he hasn't in the last season gone the way his friends have gone into wanting to get into girls yet. Like he's still kind yeah. of holding on to his sort of youth in that way, right? Trying yeah. to stick. And, and it might be because he lost time in a way with mm-hmm. this traumatic experience that he's not ready to grow up fully yet and to go down that path of of opening up to somebody in a romantic way or in a relationship way. That's the only dot I could connect is that it's yeah. just sort of I a mean, connection to season three mm-hmm. um, or no, sorry, season two, really. 
and three more. Right. Yeah. yeah. Where a lot of his trauma happened. I mean, season three, he was essentially just like the, the, I guess the signal man <laughs> for when the right. mind player was coming. <laughs> right. But then there's those scenes with him and Mike in season three where he, you know, they're talking about girls and growing up and moving on. And he's clearly was holding on to his desire to keep playing games and just hang out in the basement. And, and while, you know, Mike and Mike, Dustin and, and Lucas all, all had girlfriends. So, yeah, I think there is definitely a delay in sort of trying to, I think, trying to truncate a lot of the things that he's supposed to experience. He's probably at this point, what I speculate is that he's just trying to absorb all that and figure out how to react to it. So, right. Um, and he's just awkward. definitely he's just an awkward kid. He just might not know how to yep. you know, socially awkward. And that, and, and there's so many people. I mean, I had friends like this who were just so socially awkward in high school until they just got a little older, you know, and they just, they had to figure things out. They just had to learn who they were and, and find that confidence that, that they needed inside them. You know? Right. Anyway. So then we're in Hawkins Hall. Max is there with her headphones on. She's making her way to the counselor. She's really cold shouldering everyone, including Lucas. There's a quick shot of Chrissy, who we meet earlier in the episode, who's coming out holding her stomach. And she's coming out of the counselor's office. I'm like, what's what's happening with that? Max goes into the office, and I love, I forget the actress's name, but I love her body language. She's anxious. She's tapping her foot, you know, wiggling it. Yeah, Sadie. She doesn't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. She can't make eye contact. We find out that she's not making great grades in school. I love that she's not failing, but she's just sort of deviated from what's expected of her. So it tells us that she was doing well and that she's sort of taken a turn. She's still having nightmares, some flashbacks to that kind of gnarly moment with Billy getting sort of pummeled with all the tentacles. Right. Uh, we also find yeah. we also find out that mom and dad are divorced. Mom's drinking, working two jobs, and and really just in summary, like not a good life for her right now. And she's just trying to hold it all together. Yeah, I mean, losing her brother enough uh, by itself would be enough, but clearly that her stepfather and mother being together was what was maybe helping them stay out of the poorhouse, basically. And with Billy's death, clearly that relationship ended. Her stepfather must have moved away, something. And so now she's just left alone with her mom, who's, as you said, is having a drinking issue and working two jobs to just to make ends meet. And we'll learn later they live in a trailer park. So clearly it's really not, not a good place to be. I want to make an observation. I just thought about this, that as I'm thinking about the last few seasons and this one, there's definitely an emphasis on mothers yeah. in this show. I don't want to say that it's overtly like dismissing fathers, but there is a sense that the mom, the maternal instinct, the maternal role in a child's life, whether due to a divorce or the father figure not being there, or in the case of Ted Wheeler, the father figure just being completely inept. Right. Um, there, there's this really interesting sense of like, community of like all these kids who are essentially growing up without a dad. Right. And you contrast that with Elle who had Papa Mm -hmm. and then she had Hopper and now she's lost Hopper. And I wonder, I'd love to ask the Duffers this, what is the intent beyond that? What is the sort of motif or or what's the, the angle that you're getting at? Maybe this is going to be rounded out in season five where we find out, or maybe it's just a, a mechanic that they're using a way in which they're telling the stories about these kids who don't have nuclear homes where they have a right. healthy mother and father relationship. 
but elevating the sense of what does the maternal instinct do to a person? What is having a, not just a single parent, but particularly a mom driving those, those things, you know, Joyce obviously is the kind of the spotlight because she's got two kids that are heavily involved in the show in the stories of Hawkins and, and the world of stranger things, but even Karen Wheeler and to an extent, Dustin's mom sort of comic relief a little bit, but even here now we've got, and I mentioned this from last season that they were overt. They were just like conspicuously not present the right. entire season until we get to the flashback sequences. And I thought, what a waste of characters, but maybe it's a sense of focusing on what the mom in quotes means to a child. I don't know, but something just kind of worth maybe thinking about as we, as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great observation. And, and it might also just be, I mean, it could be a couple things. It could be an element of the Duffer brothers upbringing that they wanted to use into the show. I don't know. Maybe they didn't have a father or a present father, or maybe they just felt that it added, it, it created an environment. If one parent is sort of absentee or, or missing or, or just an idiot <laughs> that maybe that environment is what makes all these friends find each other and sort of depend on one another because they don't have that added support at home. So it, yeah, there's a lot of ways you could look at that, but uh, it, it could also just be a, a call out to moms to say like, Hey, moms are, are sure. pretty great, yeah. you know, and they do so much more than we realize and in, in making our lives easier and helping us to grow up and to become, you know, good members of society. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Before that scene ends, she's coming out of the counselor's office. Lucas runs into her. He offers a ticket to the basketball game, tells her it's important for him. She's there. And he really just sticks his foot in his mouth. He says, maybe you should find something to care about too. Always. Yeah, definitely. It's like, (laughs) Lucas, you're growing up, man, but you got to learn how to speak more eloquently. And he sort of does this. Like, Yes, that was bad form. <laughs> Maybe you should find something to care about too. Gets her attention, but he basically tells her that she's not here. She's like a ghost to which she says, look, I've changed. And I think that that's sort of a macro statement about we're all doing it. We're all changing. We're all drifting. You are too, Lucas, says me as an audience member. And so you can't really, at least not knowing her complete like internal struggles that she's dealing with, you can't really blame her. Because of no. the fact that people grow up, people grow apart, and that's what we're left with is her going into the bathroom, and he's just sort of left like, okay. Yeah, and, and she she gives him the ticket back. She's not going to go, you know, clearly. It's not her thing. And she's, we'll see later, she just has her own, she's got a lot to deal with. She's kind of taking care of her mom and taking care of their home and, and I guess their dog, yeah. if, if it's their dog, I don't know. But it's a dog <laughs> that she feeds later. And then, yeah, as you said, she goes into the bathroom. This is where she encounters Chrissy. And I really like that she she hear, hears her throwing up in the bathroom in one of the stalls. And I really like that Max tries to help her. You know, she's she's a compassionate person. She offers to help. But Chrissy, of course, tells her to leave and go away. And I wish Max would have tried a little harder to kind of, you know, Get in yeah. there and, and help her out. But, for my sake. For yeah. my sake. Yeah, yeah. Because what happens next is not not good. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. This is, I mean, it just, <laughs> jarring. Couldn't yeah. bring the word back. 
I was just completely like shocked by what I was experiencing next. <laughs> so the toilet flushes <laughs> and then a voice, which is apparently Chrissy's mom is calling her. And I'm like, why is your mom in the bathroom? And I'm like, that's not your mom. That's not your mom. Because then she see, we see these gross feet. <laughs> Dude, I went to the bathroom tonight. I was at a restaurant <laughs> And you saw those and feet. I, and I, no, fortunately I did not. But every time I go into a bathroom and I have to go into a closed out stall, I'm going to be yeah. so afraid that I'm going to see gross feet and somebody <laughs> yelling at me. Open the door, Chrissy, or I'm going to fight you like the fat pig that you are. Did you hear me? Oh my gosh, Adam. I yeah. was completely like, okay, Duffers, you got my attention. We are now in full on horror mode. And that was just level one. Like we haven't right. even gotten to level four and five and six yet by the end of the episode. Yeah. But this was like a tasty treat. This was like scoops ahoy for me in terms of like, okay, am I getting a sample? Am I am I Erica getting a sample of what you're going to do next? Yes, that was a yeah. sample. And I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't. No, not. no. It, because everything <laughs> up until this point was sort of just more of the fun side of of catching up with all of our characters, right? Just kind of seeing where they are, what they're up to, who's doing what. And then all of a sudden we're like reminded, oh, no, yeah, we're in a crazy universe where there are there's an upside down and there are monsters and scary stuff that we haven't even seen yet. So it's like, and why? You know, why this girl, Chrissy? Why is she being witness to this horrific creature uh they, these are all interesting questions that yep we will yep. hopefully find answers to yes i hope so we move to the cafeteria and this is where we're introduced to eddie <laughs> yeah <laughs> love eddie eddie's kind of the breakout character for this season i'll just say he's he's yeah. really really great well, the, the still from IMDb is so great because it's the shot of him like with his horn hands up, yeah. like with his tongue sticking out. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, who is this guy? Is that Billy? Yeah. It looks no. like Billy a little bit, but no, it's it's Eddie. It's yeah. it's our crazy friend Eddie. He's reading an article about the dangers of D&D, which I think you alluded to. We mm -hmm. talked a little bit about that last season. Uh, he's revved up. like He is just like amped. Yeah. He's like stepping on tables and yelling at people <laughs> and being like, you know, whatever. This is crazy. This is where Dustin breaks the news about Lucas not being able to make it to Hellfire. And he said, hey, can we postpone uh, what's called the Cult of Vecna? Okay, so I'm going to say this as a as full disclosure. Yeah. I know that Vecna is the name of the monster that we end up seeing. I know that that's what he's called. So that's the only spoiler that I know. Because again, and that should make sense. Look, they're calling something related to D&D. &D right. The, the character. So we have the mind flare, we have the Demogorgon. So when I hear Vecna and I hear it so close to this creature, I know just from reading like reviews of episode one only that right. Vecna is the creature. That's what so they, that's, yeah, all that's what they, they give the, the creature, the name, because as you said, they need to sort of, what are they going to call it? You know, it doesn't have a name. So by mm -hmm. giving it a name and tying it into something that they understand of, which is a real D and D character that's very powerful and difficult to beat that you kind of make it relatable or understandable to yourself in this case that's what they're doing so yeah it, yeah. it doesn't it's not spoiling anything it's just kind of going along with as you said the whole tr the trend 
for the first three seasons of kind of tying the unknown aspects of the upside down into the known aspects of the D&D world that they do know. Yeah. So Eddie, we find out, is a third-year senior. (laughs) He's failed (laughs) twice, and he's third time's a charm. He reminds me of Wooderson from Dazed and Confused, you know, Matthew McConaughey's breakout role where he says... That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's kind of the same mentality, except Wooderson's graduated. He's just sticking around as a townie, but similar, I think... (laughs) I, yeah. I don't know what Eddie's going to do after this. <laughs> yeah, he he's he can either be a, a professional dungeon master or drug dealer or maybe guitar player, I don't know. Like he's got a couple options, but <laughs> he's got aspirations. Yeah. He's got some he's got some uh he's got some future stuff there. Uh well, speaking of the future, the future of Hellfire is actually in the hands of Mike and Dustin according to him. So after they break the news, he's like, "Okay, guys, uh not going to cancel. In fact, I'm going to leave it to you since you're the future of this club." You need to recruit and find a sub. Leave it to you. See you tonight. Hopefully you're not going to die. And that's what we're left with. (laughs) It's like, all right, who are we going to (laughs) recruit? And that's not an easy thing. As you know, I I do play D&D with with friends, but over, over Zoom. And if one of us can't make it for some reason, we just cancel because you really can't easily find a sub. There are ways to do it, but it's not quite as simple as just a normal board game or something where you can say, Hey, you want to join our poker night tonight? Yeah. We, this guy can't make it. It's not quite as simple as that. So it's a tall order to, to find a replacement for something like this. Back at Joyce's house. She's on the phone with Murray. Yes. Love having Murray back in the picture. (laughs) I also love that he has karate from one to three every Friday. So good on him for picking up the martial art. And he, is told about the doll that she got. <laughs> she says, the, the stamps on the package have that hammer with the hook thingamajig. Sickle. Whatever. <laughs> right. You uneducated American? <laughs> <laughs> he asks her to take the doll's clothes off, and she goes, she has nipples. <laughs> Which I thought, it's just yeah. a great little, just, just a back and forth is so great with yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, they have, a, they have a bizarre relationship. I guess you could say, uh, yeah, th- these two, but it's good. It's it's played for laughs, but in a good way. Yeah, and the reveal is that the porcelain that she finds underneath the you know on the naked doll is actually cracked, and it's like he's got an aha moment where okay, I know what to do with this. So we leave them, and then we're in this really cool. Uh, we've seen this before where there's this dual conversation happening between Jonathan and Argyle. We haven't seen much of th- these two. Or even Nancy and Fred. So these are brand new characters that don't get a lot of spotlight, not like Eddie does. But we kind of get to know their personality types. So Fred apparently is one of the workers at the high school... Newspaper. uh, Newspaper, yeah. Yeah. And then Argyle's just another pothead uh, who likes... (laughs) He likes making bird feeders for weed called right. weeders. <laughs> and he also drives around a, a surfer boy pizza delivery van, I guess. Yes. Uh, that must be his, his nighttime job when yeah. he's not in school. Yeah, I guess <laughs> he's either eating the pizza or, or delivering it, whichever comes first. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Some people aren't getting their pizza because no. he's just got the munchies. <laughs> 
But uh, I, I love the I love the filmmaking technique here, where we have two conversations that have like finishing thoughts back and forth, and also giving us this information that uh, you know Nancy's the editor of the school paper. She's wearing an Emerson College shirt, so I'm assuming that's where she's gotten accepted right. to Emerson. We then infer that that's where Jonathan wants to be accepted. He's still waiting on his acceptance letter. And we find out what we probably already know, which is that they still love each other and that they kind of brag on each other to their respective counterpart friends or whatever. So right. it's a nice little moment. I think that it serves that purpose. It also serves the purpose of the transition into to Mike coming in. But I thought it was kind of cool that we, it's like the Duffers are saying, hey, we need to make sure that we don't forget about Jonathan and Nancy, even though it seems like the world wants to at this point. But they, they still love each other. They're still trying to figure out how to make this relationship work. And yeah, it's good. This is the hard part about an ensemble cast, I've found, is that when you start adding characters and you really start finding that some characters are elevating themselves in terms of like popularity, I think this is what Erica became, where fans loved her little snarkiness from mm -hmm. season two. And so they just, the Duffer said, okay. We're going to amp that up to 11 and give her a 40-year-old dialogue <laughs> or speech or whatever, <laughs> right. which you and I aren't fans of. I will say, just as a spoiler, I, I like her a little bit more, I think, because she's growing up. She's 11, but I, which yeah, but still... she's 15 in real life, I think, when she filmed this, so and she yeah. clearly looks it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough to get around that. <laughs> yeah. So... She might say she's 11, but I'm thinking you're 15, and this sounds more like a 15-year-old would talk. But but I think you know Nancy and Jonathan, by all intents and purposes, can sort of get lost in the weeds of all this because <laughs> the weed. <laughs> Sorry, uh, <laughs> Jonathan for sure. Uh, but but they're not as as impactful of characters as we find from like Mike or Dustin or or Steve or Robin because they don't feel as dynamic. I, I would say this is not a detriment. But I feel like they haven't necessarily grown as dynamically as these other right. characters. I still like them. I think I really like their pairing in season three as detectives and figuring stuff out. But Jonathan just sort of in particular doesn't feel like he's evolved from season one. Like he's still sort of quiet, misguided a little bit. He's not protecting Will. He's involved with Nancy, but he's still awkward. And that's okay. But I don't feel like he's sort of blown up as a character like we want him to. And so I'm glad right. that they're giving them a little bit of like air to breathe and sort of allowing us to stay connected to them. Yeah. And I think like the earlier scene, this, this is just another efficient way of bringing us up to speed a little bit more on their relationship and their characters, what they're both doing in their lives and, and just, yeah, giving them a little screen time basically, because most of this episode does not revolve around these characters at all, but you know, maybe we'll get more of them as the season goes along. Yeah. This next scene is the recruitment montage. And I think the 2022 film Nope got its inspiration from this montage because Mike rushes into the newsroom and asks Nancy to join. Nope. Yeah. Uh, Dustin tries <laughs> to recruit Steve, who we find out still works at the video store. And he's like, Nope. <laughs> Mike tries to convince a wrestler to join some random person, uh, showing him that cool 20 sided die. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Dustin <laughs> then tries to recruit Max. I love the sarcasm. Their sarcasm is great. If I play, do I get one of those cool t-shirts? <laughs> yes. Really? Everyone gets a t-shirt. We make them ourselves. And if you... You're being sarcastic. You're being sarcastic? 
just being sarcastic. Yeah, like for a split second, you think, oh, she's she's down. She's and then you're like, no, she's totally nope. just ragging on him. And I like that she still skateboards. We didn't know that, but yeah. I like that she's still a boarder. I guess you could call it. Yeah. And so, yeah, they they are having trouble <laughs> getting people to join this this group, which makes a whole lot of sense. And um, there's this great shot, uh, what I call a familiar shot, every time I would queue up an episode from a season not called season four, I guess you would call it the screenshot that mm-hmm. displays for Stranger Things is this shot of Dustin and Mike sitting down on a park bench at school and looking off in the distance. I'm like, what are they looking at? Is it something amazing? No, it's yeah. not. <laughs> what we find out is Dustin says, screw high school, and they go to Hawkins Middle School. And right. we find out, of course, that they've recruited Erica. This transition reminds me a lot of the transition, I think, in season three's premiere, where Dustin and his mom are driving. No, I'm sorry. Jonathan and Nancy are driving their car to the newspaper. And then there's a quick transition of another car coming the opposite way, and it's Dustin and his mom. Same thing here. They're running yeah. up towards Hawkins Middle, and this is where Chrissy is coming down and going to the woods. Yeah, she's like crossing the, I guess, the football field or just the the school field. I'm sure it's a multi-purpose field. And yeah, yeah and she kind of goes like through like a, an opening, which I, I'm assuming this is part of the school property, this kind of wooded area in the back because there's like a picnic table back there. But I don't know why. It's like one random picnic table. And that's where she meets our friend Eddie, who apparently is also, as I said, a dealer of drugs. Yes. <laughs> but a very friendly one. <laughs> he's got <laughs> he's very eclectic in his professions. Like he's yeah. got a lot of career paths ahead of him yeah. when it comes a lot, to a lot of like, irons in the fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Before she sees him, we get the creepy clock in the tree. Um that I thought, well, that's a nice addition to Hawkins Woods. <laughs> <laughs> and then spiders start coming out of it, and I'm like, what's happening here? And we find out that it's not real. She's hallucinating. And I'm like, what's up with that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, what is not, up indeed? <laughs> what is up with that? I mean, she hasn't even gotten drugs yet. No. So clearly <laughs> something's happening here. And then, as you said, here's Eddie. Uh, he's ready to deal. This is a fun conversation. I like the fact that we're introduced to him as this eccentric dude, and he's a little dangerous to the common man. But here, the Duffers have softened him up a little bit. He opens up this dialogue like, you probably don't remember me. And he talks about the middle school talent show where she was doing a cheerleading thing. And he was like, yeah, I have a band. He's like, oh, yeah, that band. And I forget what she calls the band. He's like, yeah, it's me. You know, I play guitar. We we come out. We, we play at this place. And, you know, the five drunks that are there love us. And <laughs> his character is really sort of approachable. Yeah. And that he's just a happy guy. Like, he is very much like... I'm not dangerous. I'm not who you think I am, which is sort of a a theme of the Duffers universe here with Stranger Things. Things aren't what they seem, you know, in terms of like horror versus not. But even I think this is one of the first characters that we sort of stereotype into one way and we're kind of introduced later on in this particular scene that he's not that way, that he's a guy that I would want to hang out with because he seems very he seems nice. He's got some ambition. Granted, some of it's illegal, but right. the fact is he's a guy that I think 
looks at her, looks at Chrissy and says, Hey, you know, I thought, you know, you were intimidating. You know, I, I right. didn't, I don't think we would ever hang out. It, it reminded me a lot in some ways of the breakfast club where you have this crew of people that are sort of finding out more about each other. And like in a typical day, they would ignore each other in the hallways, but in actuality, they'd actually be friends. And I thought this was a nice little touch there. No, I agree. And I think that it goes back. I, I like the idea. It goes back to the idea that like back in grade school or middle school, that all kids are kind of the same and they all got along and they all played together. But then at some point, everyone kind of fractures off into the different cliques, like in the breakfast club, everyone kind of figures out, oh, I'm the I'm the loser. So I guess, I, you know, I, or I'm the sports guy, I'm the cheerleader, I'm whatever. It's like you just kind of get pushed into a, you know, a bucket and are told that's the track that you're going to be on now. And then everyone stops hanging out with one another. And I think that's kind of what we're shown here is that there is more similarity between these two characters that look so different than might appear on the surface. And, and I think it's interesting. His character is kind of the equivalent of that article he was reading, you know, that, that Newsweek article about Dungeons and Dragons, like it looks so scary on the surface, but then if you actually played the game, you realize, Oh no, it's more just like playing Lord of the Rings, like there's nothing to do with with the devil or anything in the game at all. It's just this surface level interpretation because of the way it looks or the way, in this case, Eddie dresses or has his hair or whatever. It makes you look a certain way and people assume or make assumptions about you as, as a result. That's a great way to put it. And you're absolutely right with that. So she gets offered some drugs at a 25% discount or some discount because, hey, we yeah. know each other now. And she's like, do you have anything stronger? To which he kind of gives this look and he's like, I can hook you up. (laughs) And he wants to. I'll just say that he wants to. Whether he does or not, we definitely find out. Uh, Meanwhile, at the quad, Elle gets a bad grade. She walks outside. She gets tripped in the quad by Angela. Oh, that's so frustrating. And then tries to use her powers to no avail. So we're reminded that she still doesn't have her powers. Yeah. She gets laughed at. And then Angela gets in trouble. And now Elle's got an enemy. So I'm like, oh, man, just add bad to worse. In this I point. know. Although she does try. I, I was proud of Elle for trying to not point at Angela, even though clearly everyone saw what happened. I think she tempted to not get her in trouble, you know, which is like to not be the narc, even though the yeah. teacher clearly could see what was happening. Yeah. And I mean, Angela tried to sort of get her to say, hey, tell her, tell her it was not my fault. Yeah. And so in some ways, Elle could have. She could have gone farther. Yeah. But she I think she just said I tripped at first. You know, I think. Yeah. I fell. So. Yeah. So I think there's there's that setup that I'm not really looking forward to. And now what's going to happen with with that? I really feel for her here. So yeah, sad. I will say this. I was watching an interview with her, Millie Bobby Brown. And I think it was Jimmy Fallon and it was right before the season four premiere. And this clip was the clip that they showed. And I was like, can I just skip this? Cause I already know what's going to happen. I don't want to feel sad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I just hate this. It's like, and maybe that's why I like karate kids so much. Cause the character that's getting bullied gets a chance to fight back or to, you know, prove that they're better than that. Or even, never ending story another one we covered together on a podcast same thing they get to stick the bullies in the dumpster at the end <laughs> you know there's yeah. something very the rewarding yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> to see that for sure well we'll see yeah <laughs> maybe she'll maybe angela will end up in a dumpster 
Maybe so. <laughs> or having her head split open. I don't know. Sorry. That, I'm getting you, a yeah, you want it to go much farther. <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for Steve's boys, uh, or that, that boy and that girl that basically sold him out and beat him up to just oh, right. get, their, yes. get their comeuppance. But I don't think we see them anymore since he's graduated. Yeah, they, they the just kinda, I, they're house. probably working at the gas station or something. I don't know. But or at the arcade, maybe? Maybe. So then we're back at Joyce's house. She's going to Great Links in order to release the bucket onto the doll. I had two or three of these moments of like, what is she doing or what I are know. they doing? And they quickly get explained. And I was like, why is she going to Great Links to break this doll? And of course, Murray's like, because there could be a bomb in there. Sure, why not, It still Murray? feels I mean, like, uh, it's one of my few gripes of this episode. It feels like a somewhat overly elaborate way to avoid it blowing up in your face like you could just throw it at a tree or you could get on a high like on a second floor of your house and just like drop it on the ground in your yard or something i don't know it just seems like this whole contraption with the paint can and the rope it just feels like a lot of uh extra work hullabaloo yeah hullabaloo yeah. right there yeah anyway <laughs> yeah i think it's played for laughs yeah. um and it's it's fun i mean what ends up happening is uh, she drops it, the doll breaks, and we get that ransom style note that says, I paused it my second time to take notes. It says, Hop is alive, which I know we're supposed to see. And then it says, He looks fold to date. Please to make. <laughs> I don't so, know what that is. I, I, I couldn't, I was trying to read it vertically, horizontally, and I don't know what that was. So this, again, I'm not giving anything away, but I, because I guessed this when I first saw it. The second line, I didn't. I don't know what ple- what pleased to make means. I still don't. But I think it's it's saying he looks forward to date because they made the date at the end of season three. Ah, gotcha. So I think it's like I don't know why it's spelled incorrectly. Maybe they didn't have the letters they needed when cutting out the <laughs> the English language magazines in Russia. But uh, <laughs> I think it's meant to say he looks forward to date. Or fold okay. to date, and meaning gotcha. like meaning their date that they were supposed to have. Um, gotcha. Before yeah, that, watching, that makes sense. Before getting home in time for, for Miami Vice. That's right. Yeah. Well, for my sake, they could have gone to Hobby Lobby in Russia and picked up more letters from like stencils and whatnot. <laughs> but you know what? But pleased to make. I don't know what then. Pleased to meet you. Pleased to. Pleased to make. Have to make poo poo. Have to make. So when we go to the basketball game, Nancy Drew is covering the game, (laughs) and Tammy Thompson is singing the national anthem. What a funny way to bring back this joke. It's so great. That kind of thing. It's so great. (laughs) <laughs> and that conversation between the two of them gets Vicky hearing like, oh, I think I think she sounds like Kermit the Frog or like Miss Piggy, and they're having a little dialogue. So it's a little bit of a you know push. Okay, yeah. she's gotten the conversation going with Vicky, but oh my gosh, it is so funny to hear her sing. And they say all the way from Nashville. Like, did she go to Nashville to pursue a music career because she's not going to last very long? <laughs> I. <laughs> <laughs> if this is the best she can do. Yeah. Steve's date, Brenda, is with him, and she says, she sounds amazing, doesn't she? <laughs> and 
that's a great line. The one before it is great too. She's like, isn't it weird that the team is winning after you leave? (laughs) She has no filter, no kind of sense of like nuance when it comes to these conversations. It's such a great, fun character for her. And Um, and Steve's expressions are are amazing. They are. Every time she looks away, like his just like eye rolls and he's saying a lot without saying anything. (laughs) Yeah. I wondered about this, Adam, and maybe you can provide some insight. Stuff like this, you know, sounding bad intentionally as a singer or being intentionally overweight. One of my favorite, uh, a favorite movie of mine, Pitch Perfect, you had uh, Fat Amy. I wonder about how these actors go into roles like this where what is considered an asset for a character that has this liability played for laughs, being made fun of. It makes me wonder like how that works. Like does your agent say, Hey, you've got the right look for this because you're overweight because you're going to be playing a, a fat character who's going to be made fun of. I mean, what does that do to the ego of, or the, or even just the psyche of an actor actress when it comes to like a debilitating or a negative trait that you portray, but the talent of being able to be able to portray that negative trait is enough to get you the role. And it just kind of makes me wonder how that works or, if you've ever, in some of the stuff that you've done, you've produced, I know you're not a casting director, but just, I don't know about stuff like this. I wonder, is is that good for a person's career? Is that something that makes them typecast? It just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of like singing badly, I think that generally speaking, you would cast somebody that could sing. And if they can sing, then they could act like they can't sing actually better than if they really couldn't sing because they understand singing. They understand that art form. If if a person who knows how to play an instrument, if they want to, they can play it badly. You know, it's, 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 your voice is also an instrument. So I think it's kind of, I think that's what you're, you're dealing with here. Uh, And and in general, I think it has a lot to do with method acting of just kind of getting into, like, if you want to want to behave a certain way or be bad at something, then you have to practice being bad at it. Or if you need to get out of shape for a role, you can got to get out of shape and, and really be out of shape so that when you're running up a hill, you're panting. You know, you're like, this is tough because you want like David Harbour. Yeah, like this, David Harbour. Hopper right, role. exactly. Yeah. Or like, um, what's the actor who played Elvis? Um, oh, the, Austin Butler. Austin Butler. He apparently recently came out saying that he's having trouble losing the, the Elvis accent. For three years, he spent learning the accent and speaking it in everyday life so that he could have it become so natural for him that now he's having trouble as he's acting and and getting parts not having that accent anymore he has to sort of retrain himself to speak the way he used to before and that's really getting into your character i think and getting to a place where you're not acting anymore and that's the that's the method approach and of course there gotcha. are, there are actors that go with the other approach uh, and Matthew is this way as well it's the Lawrence Olivier approach which is no you just you act like you don't have to physically change yourself you just turn on the acting switch on you know in your head and perform and that's the differing kind of schools of thought with acting and as a casting director you don't know what you're going to get with an actor right you don't know what school they're coming from if they deliver though in their audition they're going to get hired and then whatever they mm-hmm. need to do to embody that character, they're yeah. going to do it. If that means putting on weight, if that means learning how to sing badly or how to play an instrument badly or or do anything intentionally, they're going to do it the way they need to do it. I guess I just think from a 
consumer standpoint about exploitation and that yeah. when you look at someone who is overweight and yes. the part calls for someone who's overweight, that a person's natural body type or someone who has not kept themselves in shape, who doesn't do the David Harbour, get big, get small. I mean, he's not small, right. but right. Who, who doesn't intentionally gain weight, but someone who already is, who has a body type that is not, it's more pear-shaped or, or sure. has a, a sense of they're not thin. So when a, when a part calls for that, I just wonder because I'm not saying all the time, but there are times that a movie calls for that part or calls for that body type specifically because they want to exploit it. They sure. want to. Yeah. So like, for instance, you look at the character who plays Barb, she's not attractive air quotes, like someone like, like Nancy, you know, who's got a certain body type. And so when you cast for her, I, I don't think that they're like, okay, we want somebody who's dumpy. We want somebody who's this. No, we want somebody who can come across as sort of homely or some you know, who's who's got a, bo- a body type that way. It just it gets me curious. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent. Sure. It does make me wonder in the world of casting, in the world of auditioning, where that sort of line is drawn for a person, for their agent. I mean, if someone's not in a certain shape, if someone's not going to be a supermodel in a movie or someone who's quote attractive or the pretty girl in a movie, do they just avoid those because they know that their body type is probably never going to necessitate a role like that and just accept that, which I think is fine. I mean, the fact is we all have different talents. I have no desire to, nor have the talent to do certain things. So I'm never going to pursue those things. And I wonder if it's the same way when it comes to being an actor in a movie, not just portraying an act, but also changing your physicality or having a certain physicality that you know will probably never change and sure. that that needs to be okay. So just just something to that I've been thinking about with regard to how certain characters come about and how casting directors sort of <laughs> describe them <laughs> because looks aren't the only thing. I mean, obviously, all these characters that we fall in love with, I mean, I don't think with Gatton, uh, who plays Dustin, yeah. I don't think they were looking for somebody who had his particular displacy or whatever the the yeah, condition yeah, that he has with his right. mouth it just added to his character and they incorporated it sure um but that's i don't know if that's the case all the time and so it just it got me wondering yeah i mean i think more so in today's world i think they're just trying to cast a variety of different types of body types and just different people that represent all different walks of life and cultures and you know just being diverse so i think that's going to include people who are thin who are heavier who are everything in the in in the middle right and who are athletic who are geeky or dorky or whatever you want to call it you're going to have a little of everything and so i think it's it would probably be more about describing i'm again i'm not a casting director but it would be describing the part of a character like we want like for dustin like we want a you know kind of science loving kind of geeky kid that's not very athletic you know something like that and they would look for somebody that kind of fit that bill who who could perform who has the best acting chops really and if they, if they had something else like he had or has that they would just work that into his character just kind of make it right. a, a component of his character in the past it was more common i would say for actors to gain weight or lose weight for roles to kind of fit a certain part and i think nowadays that's happening less than it may have happened in the past i mean talking about full metal jacket we know that Vincent D'Onofrio was actually a very muscular bouncer when Matthew recommended him to Stanley Kubrick. And 
he said, well, he's supposed to be heavy. And he said, oh, well, he can put on the weight. And he did. He put on like 60 or 70 pounds just over a few months just by eating badly. <laughs> and then you have his character. So would that happen today? I don't know. I don't know if they would just find an actor who was already in that shape and cast it more authentically in that sense, as opposed to trying to get someone to transform their body in an unhealthy manner to fit the role. Yeah. yeah. It's, these are interesting yeah. questions, though. Yeah, for sure. So that scene ends with Lucas looking back, and he doesn't see his friends. Uh, where are they? Well, there's this great sort of slow tracking, like slow-mo shot with them. They've gotten Erica, as we mentioned, and she's rocking the flag cape. I forgot that she was so patriotic, very much an American. <laughs> well, and part of that is because, I'll just add, this is a great transition because as Tammy is singing her Star Spangled Banner, it transitions into like an electric guitar riff of the Star Spangled Banner as yeah. they're walking down the hall yeah. in slow motion. So what, and of course, it's a patriotic song. She's got her, yep. her American flag cape or whatever she's wearing on her back and it's just a nice way to segue into the fact that again this is happening in another corner of the high school (laughs) you've got the game (laughs) and in the uh in the sports arena i don't know the gymnasium Mm -hmm. and then you've got the campaign in well i'll call it the prop room i don't know the drama club maybe the drama club (laughs) (laughs) it's like acting Theater of the mind. They called the D. They used to call theater of the mind because you're creating a story with characters and you're performing as them in a way, but you're doing so without any real visual. I mean, you might have the little figurines, but they're not necessary to play. You're kind of everything is being described by the players in that sense. So yeah, it's such a again someone who doesn't play. I always respected those types of games that you would quite literally use your imagination to create these worlds along with boards and things like that. You really could just play with just having your character sheet of like all your stats. You could, everything can be done verbally. You don't really need anything else to play. It's more fun if you have like a map and a visual aid and some other figurines or whatever to kind of help flesh out who your character is or something, but it's entirely, you know, unnecessary, but yeah, sure. So at the D&D campaign, Eddie is skeptical about 14, excuse me, 11-year-old Erica, and he asks, What's your class and level? Level one dwarf? (laughs) (laughs) My name is Lady Applejack, and I'm a chaotic, good, half-elf rogue level 14, and I will sneak behind any monster you throw my way and stab them in the back with my poison-soaked kukri, and I'll smile as I watch them die, a slow, agonizing death. So, we gonna do this, or we gonna keep chit-chatting like this is your mommy's book club? Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get into it, but it actually all means something. Well, I'm, no, I, I yeah. figured it would. I mean, the duffers yeah. are not just gonna throw out random names yeah. and letters and numbers, but I figured it's it's kind of a, an epic an yeah. epic character. Yeah, chaotic you know, good is just basically every character has an alignment which kind of steers them in what direction they would go. So if you're okay. a good character, you're you're going to do the right thing, but if you're chaotic good, you might sort of be a little unreliable in how your character behaves. If you're say a neutral evil character, you might do things to stab your own party in the back. Like if it means gotcha. you can get more gold or something. And so you're yeah. supposed to play your characters accordingly. <laughs> Gotcha. Anyway. Well, I mentioned this before, but she definitely annoys me a tad less. I'm hoping that that stays (laughs) uh, with me because I want to like her. I think she's fun. 
I think her angst, her get off my lawn attitude feels more appropriate in this yeah. in this environment. And she might be better in small doses. Maybe that's the key here is that we just don't need to have her be such a huge central character to the <laughs> to the plot as she was in season three. Uh, but yeah. there was a, this is a nice transition again, which clearly shows that they were paying attention to how they wrapped up season three, because if you recall, Will donates his books, his D&D books, and I think it was Dustin gifts them to Eric at the very end of the final CODA sequence. And we, of course, learn that she is, quote unquote, a nerd as well, but in her own way, because she likes My Little Pony. So it makes sense that she might get involved in D&D at some point based on her, her interests. For sure. And so it, it makes logical sense. She's not just yeah. coming out of the woodwork. And I definitely think she fits in this world. So I'm, I'm glad to see, although it breaks my heart a little bit, I'm glad to see kind of where this ends up. Yeah. But I love this next sequence, this dual scene between the basketball game and the campaign. There's so much parallel happening here. Yes. Uh, it's just action. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a great way to show action on things that are not really exciting. I mean, basketball games are typically exciting if they're close games, but right. I think you capture that same kind of energy with this D&D campaign. It starts out with uh, Eddie going, Vecna lives! And they're like, oh man, no, what's going on? And he shows the character and brings him out. Just quick quick bullet points. Lucas is going in for an injured player. Uh, at the same time, on the campaign side, like, we fight to the death. And like, yeah, you do. Uh, the dice rolls and then the ball rolls against the rim. It's just this yeah. oh, just back and forth. It's great cinematography. I mean, it really feels epic. It feels not yep. epic in terms of like Lord of the Rings, but it feels motion picture ass. Like these are very dramatic moments and sometimes play for laughs, like with the slow mo, like, no. <laughs> right. But other times I'm like kind of holding my hands a little bit, like, what's going to happen? We finally get to one last play to win the game and the campaign. I think it's Dustin who says, never tell me the odds. It's <laughs> sort of yeah. a little nod to. Not just Star Solo. Wars there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very poetic. I think it's very poetic that both Lucas and Erica both win their respective games. Right. So don't know if that's like sort of foreshadowing, like they have to work together at some point to defeat Vecna or to fight in some way, shape, or form. I'd like to see that. I think that'd be kind of cool because I think that the story is sort of leading that way where there's a mutual respect between the two of them at some point, but we're not there yet. I think this is really cool. Not knowing much about D&D, as a DM, I think my brain would say, oh, man, you beat me. You beat my game. But Eddie's reaction is so great. He says, that's why we play. Yeah. And so as a DM, I guess your part of your role is to make sure that you have an exciting campaign, whether or not you, quote, win right. or the, the party wins. If the campaign is a success in terms of everybody having a great time, then fantastic. I think right. that's kind of what the we're doing. The goal of the DM, honestly, is not to beat you. It's to create great drama and action just like a movie you know you're trying to create a story you're trying to as a group you're creating a story and so if you can create this tension where there's it's like the our lives are on the line and it's good versus evil whatever and if you can make that happen where everyone's like just holding their breath just like you are in the stands at the basketball game watching for that final shot to see if he makes it before the buzzer like it's that same excitement that you're trying to create and so i think that's exactly right. He's just happy that he made a great experience for everybody who was playing and not that he lost or won because there really isn't any 
I mean, I guess if you survive, that's the goal is not to die. But uh, yeah. but yeah, I think this is a great scene. Again, it was it's played with uh, Detroit Rock City by Kiss, which I thought was brilliant. Just a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I actually watched the scene a couple times. It's one of my favorite scenes from the show. I just think it's really clever the way they basically are showing that both of these games are of equal importance, but to the people involved in them. They may not seem equal, <laughs> but they are portrayed as equal in the sense that the people playing them are so invested in the outcomes for themselves and for their friends that it's just like everything is on the line in that moment, yeah. in in the moment of, of battle, if you will. There's nothing else that matters. And it's... And we've all been in those situations where you're doing something and it could just be playing a board game with your friends. It could be anything really where you just in that moment, you just want to win and just or just watching a game like watching a game on TV and cheering because your team won. I mean, if you're invested in something, it means the world to you. Yeah, it's a great way to finish the scene and the little coda at the end of the scene with Lucas coming out. He's just been elated. He's the big winner he's being championed by his teammates looks back and of course sees erica being championed by mike and dustin and the rest of the crew and i think it's just another reminder that man things are changing Mm -hmm. i don't think it's complete but i think there's definitely a sort of dualistic like regret and i don't know satisfaction but it's just like there's some tension there and i like it it sort of sets up what i think we'll see more of this season at least i hope so yeah he clearly is missing out on his older friends. But then of course his newer friends are like, come on, let's go celebrate. And he, you know, he goes along. So yeah, he's torn between two worlds right now. And I think we've all Mm -hmm. felt that at some point in our school years, you know, where you kind of meet some new friends and all of a sudden you're like, Oh wait, these friends don't get along. Like how do I Mm -hmm. straddle those two worlds? Right. How do I be friends with both at the same time? It doesn't, it doesn't always work. Yeah. And then the scene moves to Max's house. She's listening to the game again, just smooth transitions throughout this episode. Just really cool to kind of keep us connected to the different characters. Uh, We see that she's in the trailer uh, where she lives now. Mom is drunk on the couch. She's putting out cigarettes that have been burning, you know, so that we don't have another fire in Hawkins (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't need to be covered up by the government. She hears the dog outside again. We don't know. I don't know if it's her dog or not, but it sounds, it seems like it is. I hope the dog doesn't die in this. I'm going to have to probably look ahead and see. But anyway, <laughs> she goes outside to feed the dog, and then she sees Eddie and Chrissy. So Eddie apparently lives close by in one of the other trailers. Then we're at Eddie's house into the final sequence of the episode where the Duffer said, oh, you think that bathroom scene was scary? <laughs> Check yeah. this out. <laughs> Hold my beer, okay? Because yeah. it's just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is wild, man. This was absolutely wild. Eddie's offering Chrissy some special K, which is, I believe, ketamine. It is, which yes. is a horse Anaste- tranquilizer. Yeah, it's like anesthetic. <laughs> I mean, it, they'll give it to humans, but usually for surgeries. You know, it's not yeah. meant to. Uh, it's not meant as a recreational drug, I don't believe, but because uh, yeah. it's going to knock you out. She clearly is having hallucinations, so maybe that's why she wants it. She just wants to sleep. So it's almost like the opposite of Nightmare on Elm Street, where. She wants to go to sleep, not stay awake. Whereas in that yeah. show, they have to stay awake instead of going yeah. to sleep. You know, but in this world, I think the Duffers would do both. Like if she goes yeah. to sleep, then she'll see Freddy Krueger. And she's <laughs> right. like, I can't, I can't win for losing. Why don't you just break my arms? Why don't you? Well, right. yeah, that's well, what happens. <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> yeah, right. 
while he's going to look for it, she starts hallucinating as she has been. She hears the clock chiming and ticking. She looks outside. She's walking through his place saying, where are you? And then she sees her mom or the back of her mom. Remember last season when there were two scenes with Mrs. Driscoll and with Billy? And I'm like, I'm expecting like crazy ugly face yeah. to show up with Billy and Mrs. Driscoll. Yeah, that's you what happened here. No. Nope. Yeah. No eyes. I'm like, the Duffers read my mind. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's throw this in the season premiere. Yeah. So we get no eyes from mom. Oh, my gosh. Now she's back in her house. So we're now in two different places. Eddie's perspective, right. Chrissy's perspective. She's got her distorted voice of a mom yelling at her. She goes downstairs. She finds her dad like, oh, good. I love my dad. No, it's your dad with his eyes and mouth oh, so was- shut. Yeah, what? like screaming. Like, you know, like I'm that this is where I'm not a huge horror fan either, but I can handle some stuff. But this got to me. Yeah. I was like, Ugh, yeah. I don't I don't want to see that. That's even though I know it's yeah. probably in her head, even though I know it's not like this isn't really happening to her parents. I It's just the visual. Like you said, mm-hmm. it kind of sticks with you yeah. when you're trying to fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chrissy's like yelling and then she goes, so what? No, she didn't say that. <laughs> See, I have to have levity to make this thing. I have to, to be able to swallow this. Yeah, okay. Sean Levity. I've got to have Sean Levity. <laughs> Eddie, meanwhile, is coming back and he sees her like in a trance and tries to wake her up. The lights start flickering and we know what that means. We've been with these people for long enough. We know that, yeah. okay, the upside down is starting to invade Hawkins again. Meanwhile, she's hearing this distorted voice that we heard earlier, and this creature is coming down the stairs, and then she goes to a table that's full of rotting food, and then she tries to leave. So she opens the door, and it's all boarded up, and she's like, what am I going to do? And this is the first time, Adam, that the creature, Vecna, as we're going to probably call him, talks. Up to this point, the creature has not talked. The Mind Flayer or whatever he is right. has not talked. So this is like sort of groundbreaking. This it is, is like yeah. game changing yeah. for the Duffers. He says, don't cry, Chrissy. It's time for your suffering to end. And the next thing we see is the last like visual of the episode. Her on the ceiling with her bones breaking. Wow. Credits. Boom. With, with uh, Eddie just like <laughs> screaming at like top of his lungs like what yeah. is going on like he just i mean he's first he sees her like levitating off the ground i mean that that by yeah. itself if you see that you you're out that door like you're get out the trailer dude <laughs> yeah. get out the trailer <laughs> it's gone you're yeah. gone <laughs> and i think the last shot don't her eyes like get sucked into her head or something like that there's yes it's like oh and then it's like okay cut to credits we're just gonna leave you right there that's yeah you good your... you good you ready to see episode two i'm like no i'm ready to go to bed give yeah. me some ketamine i need to go to bed <laughs> you're not gonna wake up for a while i will not wake up for a while <laughs> and maybe i don't need to um, yeah it was a very unexpected i mean you kind of knew something was going to happen but for that level i mean again this is a show that has become very popular with younger audiences and i'm just yeah. thinking I'm so glad that I don't have a 12 or 13 year old daughter that wants to watch this show because the first season, maybe like if they were that age, but like at this point, this is like R rated and Mm -hmm. you can't, yeah, this is, you need to be 17, 18. It's, 
yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, this is definitely a point in the series where I'm like, you need to be in high school. You need to have a conversation with your kid, especially yeah. if you have a kid who has not experienced this kind of stuff. I mean, this right. is this is very much abrupt from one season to another. Like traumatic, so, like watching this, if you're too young, I think, you, and you have never seen any other car films that it's kind of referencing, you would mm-hmm. be very shocked and surprised because you're thinking, oh, this is a fun show about teenagers having an adventure. And like, nope, not quite. Not, you know. not, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> so I think the one thing that I pulled from this in terms of like, where do we go from here? What are we thinking? I mean, mm-hmm. I have a lot of thoughts, but we'll continue to talk about them as the conversation rolls on in future episodes. But the biggest thing for me is that based off of what Vecna's saying, Vector. I want to call him Vector. Vector. <laughs> Vecna. Vector. 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 What's your Vector? Vector. Vector. <laughs> What's your Vecna? Vecna. <laughs> Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> call me Vecna. <laughs> who's Who's Vecna's next victim? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't know, and it's going to be somebody. But um, the fact that he says, the fact that he talks, I think, is pretty interesting. Right. But that he says, "Don't cry, Chrissy. It's time for your suffering to end." Connecting that to her bulimia. Clearly, there was some trauma with her mama, some mama trauma at that point, if you want to call it that. <laughs> she she has body issues, and well, now she really has body issues because her body's like bent in like a swastika. But um, I really think this new creature is starting to feed off of the fears and anxiety of folks to to gain his strength, and and that's that's kind of what I'm seeing. So you look at the other characters, the ones that we know, you have. Max, who I think is probably the next in line, she's got a whole bunch of like stuff going on. Right. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing a whole, like with the opening of the episode, you know, people that say they're fine are not fine. Right. And so I think that's probably what we're going to start seeing is that that the, there's there's fears, there's anxiety, and that Vecna is going to start feeding off of this to to gain more strength. So last season, it was quite literally injecting yourself into people and using their energy to grow this monster. I don't know really. I think from the, the second one, it was possession of one to sort of see into it. So again, we've talked about this before. There's a progression of his invasion, right? You have the Demogorgons who serve as sort of like guards or sort of like, like watch uh, soldiers. Yeah. And they got defeated. Demodogs and the underground invasion and trying to possess Will, that didn't work. Now we've moved on to Billy, who's like your your head dude, and you're using the rest of the town as your fuel to grow this monster to kill. That didn't work. Now we have to get into the psyche of Hawkins or of the world, because the end of last season showed us that clearly the Upside Down is not confined to Hawkins, Indiana. It is global. There's an underground in Arkansas, probably, or in New York. <laughs> right. and depending on where you are, the upside down could be the right side up. If you're, if your city's gone crazy or whatever, but right. you know, some might argue that LA is the, already the upside down. That <laughs> right. the, the upside down is like, Hey, a nice clean LA. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's kind of what we're getting at. What I'm sensing is that this creature Vecna is going to be feeding off of those fears in order to get stronger. And whatever his motive is besides just getting stronger is still a mystery to me, but I think that's a great way to sort of end that first episode. Yeah, no, those those are really really great thoughts and observations. I think you're on a good a good path there. Again, 
don't want to give anything away. I will say there are some things that we think we know about this Stranger Things universe that are going to be challenged later in the season. And then there are some things that, as I said before, I'm still confused about and don't understand. One thing that keeps coming up for me is I feel like there's a constant issue or use of time in an interesting way in this series. And this season already showing the clock is interesting to me. Even L in that opening letter says we're, it's like we're all on a time machine or something like that. You know, so there's there's something to do with time that I think might play a role in this show in the future. It's just okay. my own personal theory that okay. time may not be exactly what it appears to be. They used Back to the Future as a film for perhaps for a reason, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Maybe um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to speculate. It's fun to think about like where it's going, where it could go. And what's fun for me, too, is that there's a lot of stuff that is unresolved because, as we said, season five is, hasn't even been shot yet. So we are going to do season four, and it will still be a long time before season five is available to view. But by the time this drops for, for our listeners, it will probably still not be done shooting. So it's a, as, as we can tell, it's a, a time-consuming show to shoot. The production value continues to increase with every season. So I, I have a feeling it's going to take at least probably two years before the next season. It won't be as long as last time, but I think uh, we're probably looking at like a late 2024 for next season. Yeah, for the final season. Yeah, well, it'll be a it'll be a fun ride to the finish line. Exactly. And I'm glad to be I'm glad to be in season four right now. Yes. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Adam, what is coming up next? Chapter two is entitled Vecna's Curse, and we know who Vecna is now, so we just have to figure out what is his curse. <laughs> and uh, the Duffer Brothers, uh, we didn't mention, but they did write and direct, as they always do the first two episodes. They wrote and directed this episode, and they are directing the next one as well. So looking forward to that. Do you think Vecna is his last name? Like his first name is Peter, Peter Vecna? <laughs> You know? Like Peter Venkman, Venk, like Peter Venkman, Venk, can't, can't speak. Venkman, Venk, Venkman, Venk, Venkman. <laughs> the flowers are still standing. <laughs> you, you, you've earned it. <laughs> I love Ghostbusters. Oh, it's such a classic! It's one of those movies I've just can practically recite every line to it because I've seen it so many times growing up and. It's just, to me, like much like Back to the Future, it's almost a perfect movie. Like It just yeah. gets everything right. Such a great balance of comedy and, and action and sci-fi and horror, you know, just a little of everything. And that's tough to do. Yeah. So, yeah. It really is. And it's not often that a movie comes along that does that. Um, no. I agree with those two. Jurassic Park's another one of those that I think yes. gets everything right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you everyone for enjoying or tuning into this uh, really supersized first episode of our uh, season five watch, The Stranger Things. I'm Patch. He's Adam, and we are out of here. <laughs>